Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Reese Show, where we interview experts to help you understand where technology is headed and how it will impact society as a whole and also your daily life. Thanks so much for learning with us and enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody. Today, I have an amazing chat with Nick Lane, who is a biochemist who thinks in incredibly deep ways about the origin of life, the emergence of mitochondria, and everything there. And I think that the beautiful, beautiful piece that Nick has is he is, um, he, he comes at these things instead of from the frame of information and DNA and RNA, he comes at things from the frame of energy and specifically the frame of um, like electrical gradients. And so I think it's a really, if you want to understand how to think deeply about um, how life evolves and all that, and especially if you want to look at it from this amazing kind of heterodox frame of uh, electricity gradients, then then Nick is a great person to listen to. So so we chat about all that. We kind of go deep on the Krebs cycle in the middle, but I think it'll help you really understand these reframings of like how to actually think about um, how life evolves. And, um, and then at the end, we get into some more big picture stuff. So I hope you enjoy it. And um, thank you and goodbye. Hello, Reese's Pieces. I'm Reese, the co-founder of Root, and welcome to The Reese Show. The century is a turning point in human history, and I'm here to help you navigate it. I hope you come away with a new understanding of our scientific, technological, and societal trends that are poised to radically reshape our world, and how you can work with those trends to become a live player in building a solar punk future. And today, I'm excited to chat with Nick Lane. Nick is a British biochemist and writer. He's the professor of evolutionary biology at University College London, and has authored many excellent books, including you know, the most recent of which is Transformer, The Deep Chemistry of Life and Death. Nick, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thank you. Pleasure. Yeah, excited to dive in. And I think there's uh, Nick and I were kind of chatting about this before the show where it's like there's a set of folks who are thinking in a really kind of deep fundamental way about core processes that underlie all of life and how the universe evolves and all of that. You know, Carl Friston and Michael Levin, et cetera. And so Nick is another amazing person in that set of amazing people. And so I kind of like want to like you know, dive into his brain and understand his view um, on kind of the, yeah, the origin of, and, and so Nick, just for you and for our listeners to know, you know, the goal here is to kind of chat about, to tell a story about life and and how it, um, what was happening before it started, how it started, how it's evolved, where, and then where we are today, you know, what, how do humans play a role? And then like, what might happen in the future? Um, and I want to give, yeah, I know. <laughs> yes. It's going to be a speed at all for an hour. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and then as another note, just for you is that um, the frame that I'll kind of be coming from is this frame that also the listeners will be coming from is I'm writing this book on what information wants, which is a big history of, of that, of how the patterns of the universe emerge and how they evolve and how replicators create the tree of life and, 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 you know, uh, memes create the tree of ideas and what that means for, for us as a species. Okay. So with that, um, let's kind of dive into, I want to start at the beginning, but actually before the beginning, which is, um, you know, you could, we could start at the origin of life and you've written, you know, an amazing book on that, but tell me a little bit about for you as a biochemist, how you think about the world before life. Like, do you, do you think much about like pre-life happenings? Um, well, yes, but not in a very coherent kind of way. I mean, I, I suppose, you know, you think about what, what, would, what was the planet like? Uh, and, and, you know, almost certainly there was no oxygen. Uh, so if you were to be there, you, you would asphyxiate, you know, immediately. Uh, you wouldn't enjoy it much. <laughs> That's the first thing you'd realize is that you were, you were, you were, you were going to die. Um, and then uh, it would be an ocean world. 
there, there would be a few islands, maybe a total landmass on the scale of Australia or something like that across the entire world, maybe smaller than that. We don't really know, but there's not a lot of land. Um, and the moon is very close and the tidal range is huge and the waves are massive and so on. It's a, it's a pretty disturbing kind of place to be. Um, and most of the, the environments that I'm thinking about for the origin of life, mostly in this context, are down at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, now, you know, lots of people don't agree with this. Uh, pretty much everything I'm going to say to you today, you know, lots of people w- would not agree with it. Uh, so, you know, you, you're going to get a biased view, but it's my view and, uh, and you're talking to me. So that's too bad. <laughs> but uh, so, so, so I'm down at the bottom of the ocean uh, and um, we're dealing with hydrothermal systems. Now, if I say hydrothermal, most people would probably think of a a kind of underwater volcano or something with lots of black smoke coming belching out of these things. They're very visual. Um, but there's also other types of vent which are kind of more gentle. Um, they're, they're not obviously venting anything. They're not smoking really very much. In fact, they are active. Sometimes they're called white smokers because there, there is some smoke and it's, it's kind of white rather than black. But it's um, often there's nothing obvious coming out. And these are a reaction between water just sea water any water it can be water on land as well and uh, and, and rock you know the cold rock this rock that you get on the sea floor and and down below that and you know i sometimes say to the students in a lecture or something you take a lump of this rock and you put it in a bucket uh, and, and, and you know it should bubble you should get hydrogen bubbles coming off it, but you might have to wait a while for the first bubble. It's not a very exciting experiment to, to, to show anyone, but go down to the bottom of the ocean to the high pressure and, and higher temperatures and so on. And actually it's going to fizz. You, you're going to have, it, it's going to effectively give you bubbling caustic soda. And that's the kind of thing that's giving rise to, to these vents. It's, it's minerals like olivine that make up most of the mantle of the earth. So this is the kind of the context. I'm imagining a dead planet, a kind of sterile, inorganic planet covered with an angry ocean uh, with, uh, with, with lots of vents across the sea floor, uh, with, with kind of bubbling caustic soda coming out of them. Uh, and, and, and so the question is, well, how does that you know, give rise to life? Uh, and, and let's 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 pause on that for a yeah. second because and I want to yeah exactly and I love um, your description of it because and I love people call it the Hadean Eon where it's like it's Hades you know it sucked you know yeah um, that's changed a bit because we used to think it was amazingly hot as well and you uh, you know people would, you say Hadean and people would think about lava flows but probably there weren't so many lava flows at that point interesting um, so it's, it was it was um it was colder. It was just normal, normal temperature. Was it room temperature? Yeah, I mean, that's probably the one thing you'd say is you could probably you could you could go for a swim in that sea, and I think it's unlikely that you. Some people think it's up at seventy degrees. I don't think that's very likely, personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it, you know, seventy degrees, you you you'd burn. You wouldn't want to go for a swim in that. But but it wouldn't be like going into into a you know a, a hot spring or something. <laughs> yeah. um, so. And it may well be that it was down at 5 to 20 degrees or 30 degrees or something. It's, these kind of numbers are really difficult to constrain. Yeah. You know, I'm not a geologist, but geologists spend a lot of time trying to work out from fractionation of oxygen isotopes. You know, there's ways of getting at these questions, but they're very difficult to interpret. Yeah. Uh, and and let, I think let, the oceans were coolish. Yeah, okay, coolish. Yeah, that's a good – yeah, it's like – so in Hadean Eon, maybe we should call it the um, – uh, 
Yeah, just like a, a wave pool instead, you know, like a big wave pool. <laughs> that's yeah, like kind of yeah, that yeah. That's um, probably close to my imagination, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, but actually, I want to push you on something here, but just before we talk, because you've done so much exciting research around, you know, the um, abiogenesis, you know, the start of life and, you know, and then mitochondria and all that. And I want to push you actually on the, the time between four, 14 billion and 4 billion years ago, you know, like that kind of, what, how do you as a biochemist, do you like... When you imagine that that time of the universe where the big thing happened and then the galaxies are forming and planets are like, how do you how do you take your does your biochemist lens like what what how does it think about that period? You know, uh, it doesn't much, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, it, it's it's you know, it's fascinating. I like reading about physics. I like reading about cosmology, but it doesn't have any direct meaning to me. It, it would have direct meaning to some models of the origin of life. If you're thinking about cosmic chemistry, if you're thinking that you what you really wanted to have here is um, organic material delivered on a meteorite coming from outer space somewhere and cosmic chemistry, helium radicals, all this kind of thing that will generate you organic molecules and they land on Earth, they land in the oceans and you end up with a primordial soup or something. There's, there's problems, I mean, well, it's, it's true. This cosmic chemistry happens. It's, it's real. It's not imaginary. Uh, and, and organics arrive on Earth on meteorites. It's definitely true. It definitely happens. It's conceivable and possible that, you know, bacteria or something arrive on Earth in that way as well, panspermia. Um, but it doesn't solve the problem of the origin of life because he just said, well, it happened somewhere else. We don't know where, we don't know when, we don't know how. We have you know, now zero information. So instead, we take a kind of a, an assumption. And science is underpinned with assumptions. The assumption is it started here. Uh, you know, maybe it didn't. But let's, we, we know it is here. Let's assume it started here. Is there anything we can say about the conditions? Is there anything about life on Earth that can guide us to how it might have started on Earth? Great, great. Uh, and the answer is, yeah, there's quite a lot. Um, and actually so strong that I would turn it around the other way and say, if we're looking for life elsewhere, there is a good grounding for looking for water, for looking for carbon chemistry and so on. It could have been other ways, but it works so well here. And there's so many good reasons to think it happened this way on Earth for a reason, for good chemical reasons and physical reasons, uh, that we can extrapolate outwards and say, well, here, here, here's a kind of the, the basics of what we should be looking for. Yeah, great. Yeah, that, that makes sense is that you can't have either, even the words like cosmic chemistry where organics can be out there in the world, panspermia or whatever, where it's like oh, pans, yeah, where the thing's coming in, like those are pop, but like, but in general, the, the weight of evidence seems to be the other way. And I also like what you say there for a reason, because usually when people say, oh, something happened for a reason, it's like some kind of godlike reason or whatever, but then you, you were like, wait a uh, second, it's, it's a, it's yeah, a no, biological I'm, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking that. of biological and chemical reasons. Exactly. It's just um, a funny, I was just laughing. Yeah, yeah. So, so tell me about, so, okay, so we're at the start of Earth. It's We got this, not the Hadean Earth, but maybe the big wave pool Earth. And you, um, So how the hell did life start? What was going on down there? Um, well, again, there's as many views as there are people working on the subject. <laughs> um, uh, and actually, an interesting, an interesting point is that, um, you know, this is, a, this is a clash of disciplines. It's a question in science. And, and so which sciences are relevant to the question? Well, the answer is physics is and chemistry is and biology is and geology is and cosmology is. And, you know, uh, and these are disciplines that go back with their kind of intellectual way of approaching a question in the, in the region of 100, 200 years or so. And one thing you kind of realize working on the origin of life is that uh, even though 
most people genuinely do their best to kind of cast off their discipline and think like a scientist you you can't help you know your training kind of gets in your way and you you, you know i'm a biologist and i think like a biologist and i, I you know I, I want to think like a physicist but i'm you know in the end i'm constrained by the way that i think about the world and you know, i just have to deal with that um it's, it's actually great fun trying to be a physicist and a chemist and a biologist and a geologist all at the same time because you you, you know you're, you're perpetually a, an excitable student going through areas of science that you kind of would love to know more about and and they pay me to know more about it what's not to like so um i am coming from a biochemistry point of view a biology point of view and and what i what i'm interested in is um well, really, the origin of life then is the origin of cells, and it's the origin of bacterial cells um, because that's those are the earliest forms of life. We can build a tree of life. We can try and reconstruct what were the earliest cells, what did they look like, how did they behave, what did they grow from, um, and, and that kind of gives us an end point. Uh, and, and the start point could be almost literally anywhere you want. So, but make another assumption. That other assumption is Occam's razor. Let's just take the simplest possible path. So if the, if, if the first cells that we know about grow from hydrogen and CO2, and, uh, and they're autotrophic in that sense that they're growing from gases, they're not eating things, uh, and they're powering that reaction. In fact, it, it, it turns out that they're powering it by electrical charge on membranes. That's in effect what a cell membrane is really doing. It's partly separating the inside from the outside, but it's got a charge and that charge is driving all the work. Um, and so then the question is, well, are, are there environments that, uh, that, that, that are conducive to this kind of chemistry? Can we have somewhere which has got a cell-like structure with electrical charges on the barriers around it with carbon dioxide and hydrogen? And the answer is, well, yes, actually the entire seafloor was covered in vents that did exactly that. Um, which is why I'm interested in the seafloor, why I'm interested in this. this. So it, it links up with biology just beautifully. doesn't mean it happens. It's just, you know, two things, you can put them together and they, they look very beautiful side by side. And, and um, so you think, okay, well, you know, how do I go from here to there? And it's a long distance. Uh, you know, you could think, if you think about a bacterial cell, I don't know what people have in mind if you think about a bacterial cell, but I mean, it's a tiny speck of a thing that you can't even see. And if you look down an electron microscope, it's got some stuff inside it and you can't work out what it is. It's really almost nothing. But at a molecular level, it's got all these machines, molecular machines and whirring parts and, uh, you know, and, you know it's long strands of DNA and informational code. And, you know, it's an astonishingly complex entity. And if you think about the, the, the kind of the evolutionary distance between a bacterial cell and a dinosaur or a human being, it's probably not as great as the distance between the bacterial cell and, and prebiotic chemistry, the simplest prebiotic chemistry. You're going back, you know, you're crossing a huge distance. Uh, and to have any, uh, you know, uh, and we have almost no information on how do you cross that distance. Some different people with their different backgrounds will think, okay, well, I'm going to prioritize information or I'm going to prioritize metabolism or, or, or membranes or whatever it may be. And whatever you do, you've really got to try and think, okay, well, here's the first step. Here's the second step. Here's the next step. Uh, how am I going to join them up? I know the end point. The end point is a bacterial cell with ribosomes and DNA and molecular machines and things. And the starting point is, 
might be cyanide chemistry or it might be CO2 and hydrogen. But <laughs> how do I line up the steps and think of a test for each step? Yeah, uh, and, and, and that's effectively what we're doing in the lab is we've, we've, we've tried to join up the dots and, uh, and then test the steps. Yeah, and I'd love to hear about those dots in a second. But I, I, one thing, I just love the kind of um, uh, the perspective that you provided here, which is just like a, a pluralist, like interdisciplinary thing where you're like, you can put on the different hats. And sometimes you can put on the physics hat and try to see the things from the physics perspective. And you also know that kind of like your full expertise is in the, you know, you know, biologist realm and the biochemistry realm. And so just knowing those different frames. And I think another brilliant thing you said is just like thinking about what to prioritize as well, where you're like, okay, you can either prioritize the information flows, you know, how's information being, or you can prioritize the, um, the membranes, you know, and like how the membranes are, are working, or you can like, you know, kind of like Kristen style um, uh, Markov blankets or whatever, or you can prioritize um, just the, um, uh, the, the energy and the, like the metabolism and something like the Krebs cycle. And so I think that that is, so you can kind of, in, and then from each of those, you can kind of construct yeah. a path. Um, well, you yeah. can, but I think the problem, the problem has been yeah. in the field generally is that uh, people bring their day job, which is to say you, 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 you come in, your, your background is in molecular biology and, and RNA and so what you're really interested in is an RNA world yeah. and the origin of information in an RNA world. And you just yeah. make an assumption that, well, what do you need for RNA? You need the nucleotide building blocks. Where do they come from? Well, they come from over there. We'll leave the chemists to sort out where they come from. And the chemists, well, they say, okay, so, so, so the molecular biologists, they, they, they need RNA. So we've got to make nucleotides. Uh, we'll go and make nucleotides. And they do that. So, okay, here's your nucleotides. But the, the kind of the join, joining up that you're not only making nucleotides, you're also making lots of other stuff. It's hard to make nucleotides. It's much easier to make amino acids or fatty acids for membranes. If you can make nucleotides, you can make all of those other things as well in almost any environment. So how do they relate to each other? And, and, and if you've got an RNA world and information is invented in an RNA world, well, it's actually a really deep, serious problem. <laughs> How does, you know, kind of random sequences of RNA invent information that goes into a whole metabolism? It's a big, big, serious question. I think it's the wrong question because it's the wrong order. Yeah, um, let's, let's let's double yeah. click on that. And I think that's a beautiful part about kind of the lens because, I mean, in some ways, I'm kind of, you know, um, priced into, you know, my book of what information wants. So I'm, I'm coming from the informational lens. And so I'm like, yeah. blah, 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 RNA world. You had a thing. And then somehow that thing. Um, these autocatalytic cycles where, you know, survival of the fittest chemical reaction. And then like it emerged and then those out. So, so, but I would love to hear your, cause you're, you're, you're saying energy's first, Krebs cycle first, metabolism first. So tell us more about that kind of lens. Yeah. So I suppose the first thing to say is, uh, you know, if, if you're going to have a large number of nucleotides, you've got to have a system making those nucleotides wherever they come from you've got to make the things and and if you're if you're growing and you're copying and you're expanding you're doubling all the time um then then you know you can probably reuse some but basically you're going to have to make lots of new ones uh, and so and where are they all coming from and saying well they're coming from over there is you know it's too vague really it's not good enough um uh, you know, if, you, if people do an experiment on it and they just have a kind of one molar solution of nucleotides and don't worry about the, where they, they all came from. 
So um, and let me let me pause you for a quick second, just, yeah. just for the listeners who, just in case, aren't aware that a nucleotide. So so RNA. So there's DNA, and DNA has two strands. RNA is just one strand, and the yeah. nucleotide is like half of the RNA strand. So there's C, G, A, and T on these things, and technically um, RNA has a different set of four, but it's roughly the same four. Um, <laughs> Sorry, me, so. yes, I should I should have said that. Yes. <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. And so and so the nucleotide is like, how do you get the the code? These like the like half yeah. of the code. You know. Um, so I mean, and, the, you know, RNA is basically a long poly of all of these letters they're, they're often called but the nucleotides are the chemical building blocks and you just string them all together and with us we have um, you know three billion of them in our own genetic code um, and correct me if, all, correct all me if i'm wrong up. but is is a nucleotide uh, when i imagine nucleotide was i correct in saying that it was you have an rna um thing which an rna um molecule or whatever i call it a, a, this big string and a nucleo is a nucleotide a single letter of that thing a single or word? yes basically it yes. is okay and then a nucleoside is like that but it's like without the um what is a nucleoside then Oh well, it's it's without the phosphate. So I mean, it, the they're just they're, they're just technical technical great, terms. Great, great, great. But yes. Um, okay, so nucleotides. So we're trying to build up this series of letters, and so you need to make a ton of them. So go back to yeah, like how do we how does the energy how do we get the energy to make all of them? Yeah. yeah um, so so if you use life as a guide to its own origin, and you say, well, the simplest cells are growing from CO two and hydrogen, um, and, and it goes into um, into basically a, a metabolism where if you react hydrogen and CO2 together, what you get is Krebs cycle intermediates. Now, Krebs cycle intermediates are uh, carboxylic acids, which is to say they're basically just carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, and nothing else. And what li- what all life does, it makes amino acids from those carboxylic acids. So you, you, you've got just the carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, you add in nitrogen as well. Um, and, and, and the nucleotide, the building blocks of, of RNA and DNA, well, they're made from amino acids and sugars. And the sugars are made from, um, from, from the Krebs cycle intermediates as well. They're also made from these uh, carboxylic acids. So there's a kind of a, a conserved, universally conserved structure to all of metabolism. And it's interesting that this, the chemistry is universally conserved, but the genes are not. The genes that apparently encode this metabolism are different in bacteria and archaea. Not always different. Sometimes they're the same, but there's these two fundamental domains of prokaryotic life, the bacteria and the archaea. They have quite different genes. They diverge very early on, and these they have different genes catalyzing the same chemistry very often, which kind of says the chemistry came before the genes. Um, it doesn't necessarily say that, but that's one interpretation of it. Now, that five, six, seven years ago would have been a really hand-wavy statement. Um, effectively, what I'm saying is that this this core of metabolism, starting with CO2 and hydrogen, going into Krebs cycle intermediates, into sugars, into amino acids, into nucleotides, will just happen spontaneously in the absence of any genes or enzymes or any, well, I was going to say information. There's, 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 there's entropic information in there. <laughs> There's chemistry, there's thermodynamics, there's kinetics. There's a lot of information in there, but it's not a kind of genetic information. Um, so, so I say five, six years ago, it would have been hand wavy, but a lot of this has now been done in the lab. It really does work. You start with CO2 and hydrogen, you really do get Krebs cycle intermediates. You start with those, you really do get amino acids. You can get nucleotides, you can get sugars. You can Now, it's still patchy, 
some things have been done, others haven't. Some have been done under some conditions, others under different conditions. You know, by by no means is it, do we really have a clear answer yet. But it's gone from being no way to wow, this, this is a real possibility that it really works this way. So so let's just assume then that it, it, it does work that way, that, uh, that we're capable of making these things. It's much harder because there's more steps involved to make the building blocks of RNA or DNA than it is to make fatty acids or amino acids. And fatty acids, they make up the membranes. And, and we and others have shown that if you just mix fatty acids in water and kind of shake it up a bit, you get what we what I like to call protocells, which is to say you get a membrane around an internal enclosed aqueous space. Um, and they're capable, they're very dynamic. They, they can grow, they can divide, they can fuse together. They, you know, they're constantly moving and doing things. They, they look quite lifelike, even though it's just a chemical system that you're looking at. And the amino acids, they do all kinds of amazing things as well. They interact with minerals and can convert them into um, things like iron sulfur clusters that are involved in, 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 in fixing CO2 to make more organics, including more amino acids. So there's positive feedbacks. You mentioned autocatalytic loops. It's a, the positive feedback is an autocatalytic loop. Um, and, and, and so if you, if you take this seriously and you start thinking through, okay, what steps do we expect to happen first? What would come afterwards? Nucleotides are quite late in the game. And to get to them, you've really got to, I mean, it, 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 it's quite possible to think about replicating protocells with a proto-metabolism, which is basically thermodynamically governed, that this stuff just happens spontaneously and is capable of making the nucleotides and is capable of getting better at making the nucleotides through positive feedbacks. So we end up with a, a kind of non-living system which are replicating protocells that are quite lifelike in many ways, but has no genetic information. It has some information in the membrane and in the metabolism, which is a thermodynamically encoded information, you might say, which says this is, and that's deterministic. That says you can do this, but you can't do that. And you're never going to be able to do that because you know, thermodynamics says you can do this. If you've got a different catalyst, maybe you can do that, but where's that catalyst coming from? Um, and what you, what you end up with, if you then think, okay, now now I've, I've got a, I've got these growing protocells. I'm going to introduce. I, I've got nucleotides forming in them. What happens if I allow them to polymerize for whatever reason? Now I have a random string of RNA, random letters, no information content whatsoever. Um, but we know in the code that there are patterns in the code that suggest there's non-random interactions with amino acids hydrophobicity, for example, size is another one, that if you've got a random sequence of RNA, you will have interactions with amino acids that bind to that RNA for physical chemistry reasons. And if they bind, they're more likely to polymerize. And so you're templating from a random RNA sequence, you're templating a non-random peptide. And that non-random peptide will have function in a growing protocell. It will either help its growth or hinder its growth. And so from this point of view, I've just introduced information into biology without doing anything other than <laughs> introducing a, a random a random sequence of RNA. Uh, and, and so the question of the origin of information goes back to the thermodynamic questions of why the hell did I just, you know, where did all this chemistry, this, uh, this, this, this prebiotic chemistry, met, proto-metabolic chemistry, why is it like that? Can we yeah. see, can we see the answer in, in carbon chemistry, is it somewhere else? It's hard to say.
but it's, yeah, uh, that's where the that's where the information comes into biology is in thermodynamics i would say yeah which is why i have to be a physicist (laughs) exactly Exactly. that's funny that's funny yes yeah then you have to get into thermodynamic information instead of uh, genetic information yeah Yeah. it um so so a so so what i'm hearing uh which i think is interesting is like yeah there's there's the rna world hypothesis blah 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 you got these little rna things that already have these big old strings of nucleotides and they're just kind of um you know finding their own autocatalytic loops and, and but the question is like wait a second how did all those nucleotides get just like randomly created um and so the and then so what how do they know what to do next (laughs) and how do they know what to do next and so it's like and and so i think that there's a what you can do is you can say let's actually look at something more kind of yeah the energy side something maybe more fundamental or kind of upstream of the the nucleotides which is when you combine you got carbon you know you got co2 and hydrogen and you get these um what was the term for the cho stuff the uh, carbohydro yes so so carboxylic acids carboxylic acids carboxylic acids those so are a lot of people will have hydrogen. heard of the krebs cycle yeah they're just they're really simple molecules they may have between two three four five six uh i mean they can have more than that but the the, the, the familiar ones are between two and six carbons uh with, with oxygens and hydrogens bound to them so it's a string of carbons joined together a string of six say joined together with with various oxygens and, and, and hydrogens yeah great added on. so yeah you're getting these little and you can imagine for for listening for me it was really cool to learn about just like yeah how like uh both glucose and all these, these things are just um and i forget the name of the uh these yeah there's so much of life is just like these strings of six carbons that have the hydrogens or oxygens like put in different places and so what these carboxylic acids it's like they can be six long. Maybe at the beginning they were they were lower. And in the Krebs cycle, and I guess the crucial bit is that what you're getting is you're, you have CO2 and hydrogen that gives you these carboxylic acids, aka these little strings of, of carbon. You kind of like you mush and shit together. And of course, it's going to make some of that the stuff mush together. Um, and so then what you get is then those things then lead to amino acids and sugars, which then – and that's yeah. the, the, the building blocks of a nucleus. So, 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 so uh, I mean – I don't know how many people have heard of the Krebs cycle or are familiar with the Krebs cycle, but insofar as anyone's heard of it, what they're probably likely to be familiar with is the idea that it's it's something to do with generating energy in our own mitochondria. Exactly. Uh, And that's That's absolutely bang on. Um, So so what's actually going on there? Well, what's happening in our own mitochondria is we're taking taking food. Uh, Glucose is the usual easy example to give, but it can be fats. It can be amino acids. There's lots of it. And they get fed into the Krebs cycle. They get broken down into carboxylic acids. So the Krebs cycle is made up of these carboxylic acids. And and, um, you, you start out fusing um a, a very simple two two fairly simple ones together to make a six carbon string it's called citric acid and sometimes it's called the citric acid cycle or uh, sometimes the tricarboxylic acid cycle but anyway you you've got this molecule it's six carbons long it's got lots of oxygens and hydrogens bound to it and then effectively what the krebs cycle does is well it yanks out the carbon dioxide it yanks out a carbon one of the carbons with two oxygens on it that we breathe it out is waste um and then it yanks out a hydrogen or two hydrogens. And now those hydrogens are attached to other molecules, NAD, for example, nicotinamide. Um, I always get my names muddled up, but uh, um, adenine dinucleotide. But the the, um, the point is, is basically it's hydrogen. We're dealing with hydrogen atoms. Uh, and you can think of it as hydrogen gas almost, but it's never hydrogen gas. We're dealing with hydrogen atoms stuck to other things. Uh, and in respiration, we feed these hydrogen atoms to oxygen. That's basically what we're doing. We are 
we're, we're, we're burning hydrogen in oxygen. It's rocket fuel. We're powered by rocket fuel. Um, so, so what happens? We're not releasing all that energy as heat. Um, we're, we're actually conserving it. And in effect, we're splitting the, the, the hydrogen atom into an electron and a proton. So a hydrogen atom is, is basically it. It's one electron, one proton. The electron gets fed to oxygen. The proton goes across the membrane. It's, it's, the, the, the energy that's released powers the extrusion of a proton across the membrane. This sounds very technical, but basically what you've done is you've just put a positive charge over there and left a negative charge over here. Uh, and so uh, you, you've just generated a, a, an electrical membrane potential. You've got a voltage across that membrane. So we've got a, a, an electrified membrane now, and that's what you're doing. We're, we're, so the Krebs cycle is, is spinning around. It's stripping out CO2. It's stripping out hydrogen. It's burning the hydrogen and oxygen and using the power to electrify the membrane. It's kind of as simple as that. Now, that's what we do. That's what all animals do. It's what a lot of bacteria do. But some bacteria do the opposite. Uh, and the older we go, before the, is, is, so we're, we're feeding the hydrogen to oxygen. But what happened before there was any oxygen? Well, think about you know we've got a cycle that's going around, and it's it's stripping out CO2 and hydrogen to electrify a membrane. Now, in a hydrothermal vent where you've got lots of hydrogen and CO2, well, and, and you have electrified barriers. <laughs> around protocells, then we actually have the opposite. We now have a reverse Krebs cycle. It's taking CO2 and hydrogen. It's binding them together to make these things. It's doing it repeatedly, and it's, uh, it's, it's being powered by the electrical charge on, on the membrane. So it's a reverse Krebs cycle, and, and, and it turns gases into the fabric of life. It's fantastic. Whoa. Okay. So let me, let me understand. So yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. Again, so like, exactly. My understanding of Krebs cycle is just like, it is the thing that produces AT, or I guess it's, yeah, it's the thing that produces ATP, ATP yes. because what it does is it takes, you can get the membrane, you make an, uh, a voltage across it. And then you, when you try to suck, when you do the ATP creation process, it kind of, that is where the um, energy comes from and or like take the ADP yeah. and like push it a little, you know. Uh, so uh, the, the, the ATP it. is usually called the, the universal energy currency yeah, yeah, um, yeah and i like to think of it as like a coin that you put in so a, a protein is like a slot machine i suppose and, and and the atp is like a coin and you put the coin in the slot machine and it, it does what it does um it, you know it changes its state <laughs> momentarily yeah, yeah. in yeah. a protein it changes its conformation when atp binds to it or something yeah and then it it, 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 it hydrolyzes it splits off so you have adp and a phosphate that goes over there and the protein changes its shape again so yeah. It, basically, life is powered that way, but then the question becomes, well, where does all the ATP come from? And the answer is, well, ATP synthesis is driven by this electrical charge on the membrane. Yeah, which The electrical is charge the on the membrane is driven by respiration, which is from yeah. burning food in oxygen. So, really, yeah. you know, you don't have which any ATP. created by the Krebs. I guess or, the Krebs cycle is the, the thing that needs as input, it needs, um, I guess, yeah, the Krebs cycle takes as input these like, glucose and puts as output ATP. Is that roughly, is that right? Well, yes, it is. Uh, that's basically right. But, but, but that way of seeing it kind of clouds the issue okay. because really what it's doing, the Krebs cycle as such is pulling out hydrogen and CO2. And the yeah. hydrogen is being fed to oxygen to electrify the membrane. That membrane now is used to make ATP, yeah. but it's used for lots of other things as well. And in bacteria, that uh, electrically charged membrane is used to fix CO2. It's used to 
take CO2 and convert it into organic molecules is driven by the electrical charge on the membrane. Mm-hmm. And so the, the bits that I kind of w- want you to focus on is not the ATP so much as the carbon dioxide, the hydrogen, and the charge on the membrane. And those are, those are the working parts that really matter. Um, and, 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 and you can get, you can spin it one way and you're effectively burning hydrogen in oxygen to generate a charge and you spin it the other way and you're taking in hydrogen, binding it onto CO2 and using the electrical charge to power that. So it's exactly yeah. the opposite. And, so, and, so and, and that's what's beautiful about these vents is they've got an electrical charge, they've got CO2, they've got hydrogen and, you, and you've got the system which is converting gases, inorganic gases from a sterile planet into the building blocks of life. Cool. Okay. I think I understand, which is that, yeah, at the beginning, we have these non-building blocks of life. We don't have amino acids. We don't have um, uh, sugars. And what we need to get is we need to get those things. And those things are the, um, a thing that can create those is a reverse Krebs cycle. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so the, um, it's great. I feel like I'm, uh, you know, I'm in like your office hours right now, you know? So, um, so, I, I hope everyone else doesn't feel that way as well. No, no, no. <laughs> and so, um, and so yeah, the reverse Krebs cycle and, and I guess the, the crucial, and that's an interesting, I do think that that reframing is really helpful, which is like ATP is like, we, we kind of see ATP as a core building block, obviously a core energy um, kind of currency of life. It's like actually to go deeper and to think about the cycle itself, to think about the um, the hydrogen, the carbon and the oxygen. And to think about, and I guess what I'm hearing is that at the beginning of life, um, what we had was the reverse of the Krebs cycle. We had the um, we had these energy gradients that are or sorry, these electron gradients that already existed, mm-hmm. um, voltages. Well, proton what, proton gradients, really. proton gradients exactly. And, yeah. and and what you get is um, you can go the instead of using that to create to turn a thing to create ATP synthase to create ATP. What you can instead do is go the reverse, which is you already kind of have the energy. Um, well, the energy then, the energy is there in the charge in the proton gradients. Yeah. So in our in our own mitochondria, we are using an electrically charged membrane to power yeah. ATP synthesis. Yeah. But uh, forget about ATP; it's kind of almost not the not yeah. not, not not relevant here. Yeah. What we're yeah. interested in is the charge that can power work. Yes. Um, and the work that we're interested in it powering in the reverse Krebs cycle is the reaction of hydrogen and CO two. Yes. Yes. Great, great, great. Exactly. And so, and then that, that reaction then builds those, those building blocks of, so, I mean, this is a great, I think in the key crucial thing for me, I do want to move to like, um, uh, the kind of the next part of the cycle, which is, you know, yeah. the like mitochondria and et cetera. But, um, I think it's a great, I mean, I think that this understanding and that there's a whole big thing here around just like, yeah, how we think about, um, the, the origin of life and, 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 and also energy and how we think about these energy gradients. And that, so I think, do think it's a very crucial, crucial frame on this. And also I, I think you also for there's information in kind of the simple um, kind of genetic information sense. And then there's information in like the thermodynamic sense. And so kind of thinking in terms of information in the thermodynamic sense at the beginning is probably makes is, is better. Okay. So let's, let's transition into, so now we have these, um, uh, now we actually have something that does look like the RNA world, but there was something before it, obviously the reverse Krebs cycle that kind of created it. Um, and, and now we have these autocatalytic, survivalic, uh, fittest reaction, whatever it might be. Um, I guess I, what I would love to hear is like, when you think about, um, I guess, hmm, yeah, what's my question here? Yeah. So, so we go from that to, um, and we think about the kind of evolution of, of, uh, biology over time 
from you know the deep sea vents obviously then to getting photosynthesis and respiration and mitochondria and then to multicellular organisms and humans how do you kind of think about i mean this is a tough question how do you think about that big journey of that four billion years to us and 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 how inform how like energy plays a role in it yeah um I mean, there's a few few things to say there. I mean, one of them is uh, at the origin of life. I was talking about the the end point is is bacteria, uh, and bacteria are you know amazingly tiny and seem to be very simple. But in terms of the molecular machinery, they're extraordinarily complex and amazingly highly evolved. Now, how long does that take? I I, I don't know. I don't think it necessarily takes all that long. Um, because we're talking about chemistry mostly, and chemistry has to happen quickly or it's not going to happen at all. Um, I don't think we're dealing with things that build up and accumulate and crystallize in an environment and sit there and wait. If we're talking about autotrophic chemistry, we're talking about reactions that are happening in nanoseconds or milliseconds or seconds, maybe minutes at the slowest, but otherwise it's just gone, especially if you're in a hydrothermal vent where everything's flushing through all the time. So, so I think it, it can happen pretty quickly. Um, but the reason that most people would say, oh, it's going to take millions of years is because of the, 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 the kind of the sheer distance that we've got across, the dis- innovation distance of going from prebiotic chemistry to, to complex cells. Um, and we tend to think of evolution as slow because what happens next is, well, we have two billion years of nothing really. <laughs> um, it's just bacteria. Uh, you know, we, we get through at the end of that two billion year period of just bacteria, we get to what's called the great oxidation event. And around that time, there's a snowball earth as well. So this is a kind of um, middle age crisis of the earth uh, where, where, in fact, the, the, the snowball earth means that the, 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 the sea froze over at the equator and possibly even sealed off the entire planet. So it was just, just completely sealed in ice. Some people talk about a slush ball earth where it was not necessarily completely sealed, but you know it was a catastrophic um, change in climate uh, and, and conditions. And that was linked with oxygen and photosynthesis. So we know that photosynthesis arose around that time. Maybe it could have been as much as a billion years before and just somehow didn't make a mark for very long, but, but uh, it could have happened almost immediately before as well. And then after that, it kind of gets back into a stasis that's called the boring billion very often. Um, so we have another billion years. And now in this time, uh, the complex eukaryotic cell arose. We don't really know exactly when. So eukaryotes, that's our own kind of cell. Uh, with a, is a lot bigger, you know, 10 to 100,000 times larger than bacteria in volume. Uh, and, and with a large nucleus where all the DNA is stored. And then all these moving parts. If you look at a eukaryotic cell down a microscope, it's full of membranes. It's full of um, sacs and, and uh, compartments. And you, know, you don't need to know what any of this stuff is to realize that there's a lot of stuff there, which you tend not to see in bacteria. Um, and, and, and if you look at one of your own cells down a microscope or a plant cell or a mushroom cell or an amoeba, they've all got the same stuff. They've all got the same, not only they have a nucleus, eukaryotic means true nucleus. Um, so, so they all have this nucleus, but 
the nucleus is surrounded by a membrane. It's the same structure in the membrane. They've got pores with the same proteins that make up the pores. They've got an elastic lamina, which is exactly the same. They, they, you know, they've got what's called an endoplasmic reticulum, a kind of a, a network of membranes inside cells. They've got mitochondria. All our cells are basically the same. You'd hardly tell the difference between a plant cell and an animal cell down a microscope, except for kind of the vacuole or something trivial like that. Um, so, so here's a huge gap. I, I like to think of it as the black hole at, uh, in, in, at the heart of evolution because bacteria arose and archaea, very similar to bacteria in their appearance and their, their morphology, but not in their genetics. They arose 4 billion years ago. And the reason that we look at fossil relics of what look a lot like bacteria 4 billion years ago we think they are bacteria because bacteria look like that now. They haven't changed. So, so actually, if you take the eukaryotes out of the picture, bacteria just did 4 billion years as a flatline. They, they didn't change at all. And, and archaea as well. Um, now, that's interesting from an information point of view because they have large populations. They have strong selection. They, they have searched genetic sequence space exhaustively, um, far more than eukaryotes ever did. And yet they stayed as small, fairly simple cells. They, they got stuck in a rut. Um, and eukaryotes broke out of that rut and it happened abruptly. Uh, and this is one of the things, it goes back, I mean, it goes back a long way, but uh, Stephen Jay Gould talked about punctuated equilibrium. Evolution can happen really quickly. It's just that most of the time it's stuck in a rut. The, the conditions are kind of basically not conducive to change. Now, the fact that bacteria and archaea explored all this sequence space and did not come up with complexity, morphological complexity, to me says there was a constraint. There was a constraint that was not a genetic constraint. Uh, and I think it was uh, a constraint linked with energy. Uh, it's partly genetics, and, and here's how. What we know about eukaryotes is they all have mitochondria, the power packs and cells that are generating this electrically charged membrane where the Krebs cycle is happening. Um, and, and, and all all eukaryotes have these, and apart from a few that lost it, but they lost it later on. Um, and all mitochondria have their own genes. They've got a little outpost of genes that are necessary for effectively controlling this electrical charge. So, you know, I, I can't let this charge go. It's right at the heart of my thinking about life. We've got, we've got electrical fields on membranes and they're driving an awful lot of stuff. Uh, and you've got a gene outpost right next to this electrical charges field. Um, and, uh, and if you get rid of it, you'll die. This is the mitochondrial DNA. Um, and so, so each, these were bacteria once. They were free living bacteria that got trapped inside other cells. Um, it, it seems to be a pretty unusual thing to happen. And once you're in there, uh, in effect, it's hard to leave again. You, you kind of, and, and, and it's, it's a very intimate and very conflicting relationship. I mean, this is, you, th you think of Sartre's idea of hell as being trapped in a house with one person or something for eternity. Um, I mean, I'm not sure I would see that as hell necessarily, but, but you know, in, in the case of the mitochondria, you've just trapped uh, a population of bacteria with their own agenda and their own interests, if you like, inside a host cell, which has got a different agenda and a different set of interests. And you say, right, <laughs> you are forever together. Uh, figure it out. <laughs> and they did. And, they, and the way they figured it out was to come up with a nucleus and an endomembrane system and all the rest of this stuff. It was all really about how do you deal with your pesky endosymbionts.
and, and, and so what what happens? Well, you end up with multibacterial power. So each of these mitochondria have got the same electrically charged membranes that they ever did. They've, they're contributing this power to the cause. Um, they've kept a few genes, but most of the genes they got rid of. They're left with, in our own case, 38 genes in the mitochondria. And, and you know, I think the, the record is uh, Reclinomonas americanus, which has got about 98 genes in its, uh, in its mitochondria. But basically, from three or 4,000 in a bacterium, you're down to a, less than 100. Um, and the, the, the overhead costs of copying them and making proteins from them is nothing. Um, and, but you've got all this energy. Uh, and that means you can you can swell up your nuclear genome to become enormous, uh, and and that's basically what we see in modern eukaryotic cells. We have a genetic asymmetry where we have a huge nuclear genome encoding twenty thousand genes, but a lot of regulatory capacity as well, lots of lots of regulatory RNA and whatever it may be, uh, and supported energetically by these tiny mitochondrial genomes. So it's a genetic genomic asymmetry that we have. Uh, and, and that in itself then allows multicellular life of a sophistication like us, because in effect, there is, there is nothing out there with the complexity of a flea composed of bacterial cells. The simple, simple multicellularity in bacteria, uh, which is to say there's differentiation from the same genome, you have different different phenotypes from the same genotype but it's pretty it's pretty simple if you want to have something as complex as a human being with multiple different tissues and organs and so on without genetic conflict uh, so if you were to try and build you know if you were to try and build a human from 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 bacterial cells and do it as a as a as a kind of a as a biofilm as a as a bacterial mat where different bacteria effectively lived in your head and different ones lived in your heart and different ones lived in your kidneys. They were, they'd all basically be at war with each other. They're genetically different to each other. They have a different agenda. It, it will fall to pieces very quickly. What we actually have is clonal cells. We are a giant clone of one cell type that came from a fertilized egg. So the DNA in all our cells is the same, but in the brain, we switch on these genes and we switch off those genes. And in the heart, we switch on a different set of genes and in the lungs, a different set. Uh, and that means we need to have all of these sets of genes sitting in the, in the nucleus and resistant to decay, resistant to mutations. They, they, they've got to, we've got to have a large genome that doesn't decompose. And to do that, you have to have a lot of energy and you need to have sex, which is basically the mechanism for quality control of large genomes. Yeah, yeah, this, I mean, and let me, so this is, a, I love this perspective because it really, when I think about um, the kind of transition into life and, and again, coming from my like information first lens, I think about the start of, um, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the mitochondria coming out and hanging out with the, um, trying to be with its friend and, you know, being enveloped by the, and um, they're hanging out. And I, and I mostly think of it from the perspective of, oh, now the, um, in the past, the gene had to be attached to the cell, the DNA, sorry, DNA had to be attached to the cell wall, but now it can live freely in the nucleus. And that uh, increases the length of the, the DNA by like roughly a million times. And that is amazing because then you can like, it's just like getting a new kind of USB drive where you're like, oh my God, now I can actually like code up a bunch of more amazing things. And so from an information first lens, I'm like, oh, that's what matters. It's the bigger um, drive. And, and what I'm hearing is, is that is kind of true, but there's also a, um, what really matters is that you have this amazing power cell that only has 38 genes in it that is just able to power, um, uh, it's able to, to, to power 
the rest of obviously it, it powers that like these multicellular lives that can be um, that are these clonal things where both the inform- information lens we're all kind of in alignment where it's like it's all one gene and there's one kind of output yeah um, yeah you're going no, they, they, I mean, they, this idea that uh, the bacterial genome is circular and is attached to the cell membrane and so on, it's, uh, it's a nice idea. It's quite, a, it's quite an old idea. Yeah. Um, uh, and it kind of, it's, it's similar in the sense that it's a structural constraint. So what I'm talking about, why do bacteria remain bacterial? I'm saying there's a structural constraint. They need an endosymbiont. They need a power pack. Yeah. They need mitochondria. Um, but there are other structural constraints that people have talked about. One of them is the cell wall. You have a cell wall, so you can't really just grow big very easily or, or whatever it may be. If you lose the cell wall, you're probably going to die. But if you somehow survive, then maybe you'll, you'll, be, you'll be all right. That's it was, it was a theory that goes back to Tom Cavalier-Smith about phagocytosis, that you can't, phagocy- you can't eat, engulf another cell unless, you're, unless you lose the cell wall. But there are plenty of archaea and bacteria that don't have a cell wall and they don't become miraculously large and phagocytic and anything. And there are also bacteria uh, that have multiple chromosomes and straight chromosomes and chromosomes that are not attached to the cell wall. And again, they don't show any sign of becoming large and complex. So it's, it's, not, it's not that structural constraint. Uh, that's not what's holding bacteria back. I completely agree with you that it, with a small bacterial genome, whatever the constraints are, you just you just can't do all this stuff. You <laughs> you need a large genome, and you need to be able to maintain that genome. And the maintenance of that genome, there's two things you need really. One of them is the energy uh, to 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 just store the and store it and express it because it costs a lot of energy. If you've got twenty thousand genes and you want to make you know, 100,000 proteins from each gene, there's an energy bill that you've got to pay. And if you can't pay that energy bill, you're going to die and selection will be rid of you. So that's one thing. But the other thing is, if, you, if you're just a bacterial cell and you, you scale up to a eukaryotic-sized genome and you continue to do your replication bacterial style, either by cloning yourself or by lateral, what's called lateral gene transfer, where you pick up bits of DNA from the environment. If, you, if you're stressed, you pick up some DNA and stick it into your genome and hope it'll do the trick. And it doesn't do the trick, pick up another bit and another bit, and you, you, know, you, you keep on going. It works pretty well for small genomes. But the bigger the genome gets, the harder it is to maintain the quality of the genome by picking up bits of DNA from the environment. You've basically got to spend your entire life picking up random bits of DNA and hoping that one of them will work. And it it doesn't. I mean, we can show by mathematical modeling that it it doesn't work. What sex does in eukaryotes, it uses the same machinery that we see in homologous recombination in bacteria. It's exactly the same genes and enzymes involved. We know where it came from. But instead of picking up bits of DNA from the environment, we fuse two cells together. In our own case, the sperm and the egg, but, but it goes back to single-celled eukaryotes that basically produce sperm-like things, motile gametes that swim around and fuse together. Uh, and then when they fuse together, they line up all the chromosomes, um, and then they double everything, and then they do lots of crossing over, recombination between the chromosomes. Uh, and then they go through two rounds of cell division, uh, which is called a two-step meiosis. And they produce gametes again that way. So, so what have we just seen? We've just seen that instead of it being piecemeal bits of DNA from the environment, we have fused with another cell. So we've kind of compromised our individuality as a cell and become, become a, a fused entity. And we've systematically and reciprocally lined up all the chromosomes and recombined across all of them. So it's, it's both systematic and it's reciprocal. Um, 
And, and that's what we don't see in bacteria. And again, to have a large genome, you must do something like that. You can't do it any other way. Um, and, and it's a pretty major change to force on a cell is to just kind of fuse with another cell and share its DNA like that. I mean, it's... Uh, it's 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 a big, it's a big ask yeah, yeah. <laughs> um that's great so as as we get into rap mode here i mean so a this has been a great i mean a to learn about um the just like a kind of just a reframe around um energy within these systems and that really and i and i loved how you said also later where it's like you're pr- like the primary thing you think about is these electrical dr- gradients and like these voltage gradients and so you're like okay great and that using that lens to kind of explore life and biological life is like a really good and both at the start and and, and when we got um eukaryotes into today is like a really good frame and so i think you know trying to apply that also to like current humans and future i think will be an interesting um exercise it also is really helpful for me just to hear about the um yeah like the different kind of constraints that exist within these systems where you you can either think of them as you're doing this you should think about informational constraints while you're also thinking about um these kind of like energetic constraints and so that's kind of a very helpful lens for me um as a wrap for the um listeners hey check out i mean yeah nick has a bunch of amazing uh books i mean they are um they are quite excellent the most recent one is called transformer the deep chemistry of life and death uh he also has, has this amazing one called the vital question which on energy evolution and the origins of complex life and then life ascending the 10 great inventions of evolution it's good you know it's, it's great stuff yeah. um he's also are you, what were you gonna say Oh, no, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, kind yeah. of you to plug them. Yeah, I mean, I love, I love shield and stuff. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you're not on Twitter. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's right. I, oh, I, 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 I'm too obsessive to uh, kind of, I, I wouldn't be able to let it go. Uh, yeah. And I would, cease, uh, I would cease functioning in other ways that I care more about. So I, I'm deliberately <laughs> not on Twitter. That, that makes sense. Um, well, you can definitely go check him out at nick-lane.net or, or exploring these books. Is there anything else you want to say to our listeners uh, to kind of wrap up today, Nick? Uh, well, one thing um, uh, we, we've talked about early uh, origin of life and early evolution and the, the eukaryotic cell and um, we touched on multicellularity and the origin of animals and so on. But uh, the last half of the second, well, the last third or so of the book uh, is really about aging and the way that the, the Krebs cycle and these, these, these uh, electrical charges on membranes run down and what goes wrong as we get older and why it's linked to diseases like cancer and so on. And then there's an epilogue, uh, which I, 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 I barely dare to talk about in the time remaining, but um, it's, 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 it's really about how do electrical fields play into consciousness and not, not consciousness necessarily. There's an awful lot going on in consciousness, but I, I, I tend to try to simplify things down to the, the lowest possible bar uh, that, that, I'm, that I can see. And the lowest possible bar about what a feeling is, about what a qualia is, to me is linked with electrical fields and that's not original to me at all um but why well if you think that the first cells had an electrical charge and electrical fields on their membranes and that it was linked to effectively the metabolic health of that cell and and it it, it integrates metabolism is billions literally billions of reactions per second second after second after second after second going on all the time so so how, how does one reaction know what another reaction's doing? This is not at the level of, of genetic regulation. There's too much stuff happening to regulate that whole system with genes alone. It's linked um, through the Krebs cycle to the electrical charge on the membrane. And all of metabolism, because it's linked to the Krebs cycle, we now have 
the, its LinkedIn series to the charge on the membrane. And if that charge fluctuates, then metabolism, all of metabolism shifts. And that has a feedback effect on the activity of genes and so on. So there's a, there, there's a lovely way of seeing the simplest form, if you like, the stream of consciousness, which is linked to electrical fields on the self that is a bacterium. I love that. I love that. That's a great. And what it makes me think of is just like, and kind of like what we were doing before, where it's like, you can either think of um, information as genetic information, you know, or you can think of it in, in kind of a thermodynamic sense and kind of entropy and whatever that kind of uh, physics information. And then this is a similar thing for me, where it's like, you can think about, oh, how are all of these things um, doing gene re- regulating? And the, the, the simple answer is, you know, something like gene regulation and blah, 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 it's in the DNA. But then there's, there's and the lens that you're providing, a lens that like, I'm thinking about so like Michael Levin and Jason things, it's like, how is electricity moving through the system? And how are these electrical fields moving through the system? System, and that lens actually uh, provides lots of juicy answers. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's not. I'm not knocking genes. Obviously, genes are central to biology and important. Some of your best friends, well, are genes. <laughs> but it's uh, it's not the only thing going on in biology. And yeah. and, and and it's you know, some. It's quite you know. There's a, there's a long distance that the, the the idea of electrical fields being important in biology it goes back a long way. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned Mike Levin a couple of times. I mean, his work is transforming the way that people are seeing this kind of thing, and he's he's thinking about it in terms of neural networks and in terms of uh, development and 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 the the electrical fields linking cells together and uh, bioelectric fields and patterning and so on. Um, and, and, and he's thinking mostly about the, the cell membranes. I'm thinking mainly coming from inside the cells, inside the mitochondria, where the fields are even stronger. And how do they interact with fields on the membranes? And how does all of this interact with the genes? They're, they're really big, big, open questions. And it's not to say genes are not important. Obviously, they are. But they're not the only things. They're not the only guys in town. There's, there's yeah. other stuff going on, which is important, too. I love it. I love it. Um, well, thank you again for, for your time today, Nick. And um, uh, definitely, uh, listeners, if you want to go check out um, this kind of electric field, you know, uh, first view on life, then de- check out any of Nick's books. And, and they're delightful and juicy. Um, and Thank you for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Thanks so much for listening today. If you like the show, please give us a five-star podcast review or subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to chat about this episode with a community of amazing, smart, ambitious, divergent people, come on by and join our Discord. You can find it at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, you can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash Reese Lindmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Thank you so much.